this is the kind of thing you have. So moving along, here's a give you a couple of pictures of what happened. We built a new, we wound up purchasing a, a, another console, pick up picture number two. And here's, this is me at the MCI 416 console, it's a 24-track console of the time. And this is this is me, yes. Yeah, haircuts were unknown at that time. And uh, we're in the studio, and it's pretty basic. And you can see this is blind tape Studio A. And when you see these, when you see this picture, remember that many of the gold records that were done at blank tapes were recorded, mixed in this tiny room. Uh, right over the, the tape machine, up in the up in the corner, is the air conditioner that kept the place cool. Yes, that's burlap over fiberglass. It's pretty basic. And um, you have like to make to it work. You got to make it work. You got to make yeah. everything work. No, you're on a string, as we used to say, shoestring budgets to make everything operate, right? right? That's right. Here's another picture of me at this. This is uh, picture 14. So this gives you an idea. Bob hunched over the console. Look at him working. Yeah. So this is when we were just still 16 track. This shows you how small the console is. And this is me working. And uh, it was an interesting time. So anyway, we're in there making these records. And uh, we're hoping to have success. And, you know, we're having a great time. What happened at that time was all the small labels, like D-Light Records, uh, all the, the disco records labels, West End, they were just being formed. And like I said, they don't, for them, I don't remember the sales figures, but like if they could get stuff to the record pool and they could sell 10, 20,000 records, big money. So, right, right, am I right? You know, I, um, we have to, by the way, we have to have a big shout out. While I'm sitting there making these records, these these record uh, um, uh, these uh, these uh, places like Disco Mania, uh, Vinyl Mania, and things were really making this happen. It's not like, uh, believe me, we didn't make these records, and all of a sudden Columbia Records says, "Yeah, we're full page ads. We're going to make this happen." It was pretty funky. Um, one more picture of that era is fifteen. And there's me with somebody else's girlfriend, and uh, there's the studio. And uh, it's as you can see up up over the air conditioner that ran the studio is one of the speakers. One of the things we thought was really going to happen in the early '70s was quad. So we had a speaker in each corner, and of course, never happened. So okay, so we did all this stuff, and we're we're making these records, and. <clears throat> One of the record labels of that era um, was, there were a couple of record labels starting, and one was Butterfly Records. And if you want to roll the picture in a moment, we'll watch the video. But this is from 60. We have video, everybody. We have actual real video. And he, he was able to grab me. And I knew it was him, but he made sure we got this together for this. Hopefully, we don't have no problems with a clamp down, but we're going to take a shot. <laughs> There'll be no audio. He will moderate and tell you what's going on. But before you play it, so one day I'm sitting there 
And I'm so clueless. They go, 60 Minutes is going to come down. We got we got this session. I'm doing this album with this guy, John Ferrara, who you'll see as the producer. I'm the engineer. We're going to do 60 Minutes. I'm an idiot. I go, well, how are we going to do the session if they're going to video, you know, they're going to cameras and everything. The time, you'll see this was film. They had film cameras in there. And the, the um, they came down, and what they did was this was a uh, – 60 minutes, typical thing. It was a disco about disco. And the rest of the video, the record we made, they show it being played at Studio 54. And before this, they had a, um, the, the video was uh, doing Peter Brown, I guess his, his record. But this is us doing this record. So if you'll run it, I'll tell you what this is. So that's me at the at the tape machine, and this is the producer, John Ferraro. We all have our 70s look, and that's me. That's our tape machine rewinding back and forth. It's totally mechanical, so I'm turning things up. Um, and that's Doug Riddick right behind us. And uh, Danny Pucciarelli. Yes, Danny Pucciarelli. So just so you can see, so I'm, I'm engineering, and this is, this is uh, 60 Minutes' version of a record recording session. And of course, because it was, it was based on how we made this record and how it became a hit. So the producer is telling me how to make records. So as you can see, <laughs> he's not only telling me how to make records, he's making it for me. And, um, you know, everything, even my wristwatch is mechanical. That's a wristwatch with a stopwatch on it, because even though we had a stopwatch on the on the tape numbers on the machine, we couldn't do much with it. So I would manually click the button. So that's it. So that's the seventies and on sixty minutes. So one day, hang on. Wait, let me let me make sure we get. Hold on a second. I see Italian in there. Was that Sergio Munzabai in the back as well? I don't think it looks so. Like Sergio, it looks like Sergio back there. I couldn't tell. I always wanted to know who the guy was to the left because they brought a bunch of DJs in to watch you guys. That, that See, the premise of that Dan Rather episode, Dan Rather was a big commentator for, for 60 Minutes. He had a really big show. And studio just started. Okay, and now they go into behind the scenes, and of course, Bob is an architect to what's going on. What a perfect place! But the record he's working on is not one of the better ones. It's, it's okay, it's not his fault, he's, he's just doing what he does. But the key thing is, they were saying in there they wanted to have the DJs give their feedback to what they thought would be hot for the dance floor. Bob already knew what was hot for the dance floor. There was no doubt because what was happening was he was given instruction. Here, Bob, here's our track. Make it work. And he would go put his hands in his ears and put it correct. So that's what Dan Rather's showing you. And you can hear him commentating that where the beat and this and that. I'm saying to myself, no, it's not how it is. But I can understand what he means when he said how mundane this was. You're wrecking our session because he's not really doing what he's doing there. He's making it more for Hollywood. Very, and you can see the guys in the back like hanging out. They weren't doing much, right? I mean, this is two in the afternoon. There's no DJs up at two in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> 
So anyway, so we did, we finished this thing and they, they, they finished the video. So we're still working with different record labels. <clears throat> I'm working, <clears throat> excuse me, with Delight Records. And uh, this is before Sergio. Wanda Ramos, of course, was the uh, assistant to Frankie Crocker. And her husband at the time was a DJ. And we started working on records. And we worked on a record um, uh, by a group called um, Made in USA called Melodies. And you listen to those records, everything that's happening on the, that record is we play 30 seconds of it, we adjust something, we cut the tape, put the next piece on. It's not like you can come back later and adjust something. And if you remember that record at the end of, well, anyway, go listen to the record. It's pretty crazy. So <clears throat> I got I got a call one day. We had been working with Patrick Adams and uh, Leroy Burgess and a, a bunch of the gang. And what they would do, Bobby, follow this, Bobby Robinson was a well-known figure in the New York R&B scene. He owned a record store on 125th Street. It was a big hangout. And Bobby used to book me and the studio on Saturday afternoons. He'd say, Joey, go down to make a record. Harry, make a So we would make all these records. And that's how I met a lot of the New York people because he would give them time. Somebody like Leroy would come in with his, uh, with his cousin and they cut tracks and it was, it was wonderful. And Patrick Adams was one of the people that Bobby <clears throat> was financing. So I, I met him. One day, Patrick books the time. He says, we got, <clears throat> we have, um, this is after we had done, um, uh, not Funkin' for Jamaica. We had done a record um, that was sort of successful. He says, I got this, um, I've got a crazy thing. This is a uh, tax write-off record label called Prelude Records. And <clears throat> I got a tiny budget to make a, an album. If you know anything about Patrick Adams, uh, he's brilliant. He can, he can take a pile of crap and turn it into diamonds. So he's, yeah, great. So um, he books the studio to make this record. And we're, <clears throat> we're cutting the tracks. You know, we're doing the things. Three hours go, we're out of time. Great. We only have three tracks. Uh, keep on jumping, push, push in the bush, and summer love are the three tracks. So I said, and I'm laughing and say, how are you going to make an album out of three four-minute pieces of music? Comes in, <clears throat> string, he comes in one day with string parts, hands them out. You know, string players don't just make this stuff up. They're sitting there reading beautiful string parts. Then about a few days later, horn players show up. They literally walk in the door, walk in, and Patrick says, I said, Pat, great, everybody's ready, hand out the parts. He, Patrick Adams sits down on at that little table with that stupid phone and creates the, writes them right there. He's, he's a genius. So he hands them out, <clears throat> stuff is sounding great, um, I was very proud of the way that record came out, the album came out. Um, one of the best parts of the album <clears throat> to me was that I was the sole engineer on it. Because, you know, nowadays everybody shares in the process. But back then it was, 
I was very proud. I did done a lot of solo albums, but this one sounded really good. And after the fact, I was always proud of the fact that nobody touched the board except for Patrick when we mixed it. You know, he was did his thing. So I'm thinking, this is the moment. Blank tapes is going to be. Everybody's going to know about us. You know, the record's going to. It's going to be big and big and big. And I can't wait because when the album comes out, I'll have a credit and who knows what's going to be on. If you'll put up number 20, this is what the album looks like. That's not blank tapes. That's a stock photo they took about two years, a year or two before it at uh, Sigma Sound, which is a very nice studio in Philly, but it's not us. When I, when I got this record album, I was impressed at how sexy everything was, but I thought, and I, I can see why they didn't want pictures of me in that dumpy little, dumpy little studio, but it was funny how that worked out. So anyway. Oh, wait, wait, Bob, can I say something? Hmm. So here we're all thinking, Preed's understanding Sigma, and we're looking at the gear going, oh, wow, they use DBXs, and we're all trying to figure out which gear you were using in the room, because when we turned over, we went, Oh, blank stu- We're thinking all this stuff later, 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 later. We're going, they use one, one seven, uh, 165s and this, you know, we're all looking at all the pieces of gear. We're going, you had to have all that stuff. Let me tell you a couple of things about gear. <laughs> because, I know, I know. When you saw that Dolby in there at the early days, they were real expensive. And a company called DBX made their... Um, uh, made a noise reduction system, which was much cheaper. And it was so cheap that you could buy um, home units, semi-pro units. We put them in. We had 16 tracks of DBX. And we thought we were really on top of it because hardly any other studios had it, so they'd have to stay with us. That's how that's how we were in those times. But um, <clears throat> the uh, Keep On Jumping album was recorded with DBX. And it was recorded, as you see, and... If you saw, if you remember that that tape machine, uh, the tape machine we used, it was a mechanical tape machine. So Patrick, uh, you know, we're making, uh, we're mixing the record. Patrick's mixing the record. We're he's we're cutting the thing up, and one whole side of the album is a four minute song, expanded out. So anyway, that comes out. It's a hit. Uh, and we had just started, I had been working with Salsol Records for a while. And either my, my session work at that day, those days was either remixes for Salsol Records or New York underground music, you know, the new wave stuff. And uh, that's, you know, that was it. So uh, Salsol started taking off. And whenever, every day, for about three years, I would be working on a Salsol record. And the DJ of choice for them was Bobby DJ, Udadaro, who's a sweet guy and was great. And we worked well together. And we would, we built our new uh, studio and uh, we wound up with three studios. I'm in there with him every day. We're making records. That's how I met Walter Gibbons. He came in mixing records. Um, and uh, all that stuff. And Tom Moulton would be down in Philly. Tom Moulton had a different perspective. He uh, 
he was basically working out of the studio that they made the records. And while he made fabulous, his stuff was glossy and, and cool. But up in Connecticut, uh, in New York, we went crazy. It was like, okay, great. Bass drum, 30 beats, you know, this and that. We, we were in charge. We were sort of asked to make it crazy. So that's what happened. So wait, 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 let me, let me ask a question. Cause this is what, cause I'm listening to the, I can hear, um, summer love and those records on, on prelude. Okay. Push, push in the bush. And you hear the kick drum, the boom, boom. Did you pre to this album, you're getting, you're starting to work fundamentally to make disco become what we're getting used to hearing coming out of New York. Did you go out to any clubs to hear what your sound sounded like from some of the DJs playing the stuff so you can get an idea and go, oh, I'm going to start pushing my kick more in front. I want to get more low end. Or did the DJs start to push you to do this more, the remixing side? Which came, do you remember, first? I think for me, what one of the, the interesting things about <clears throat> the disco era, because um, I came from... Um, an era of working with Latin musicians and R&D, uh, Crown Heights Affair. I'd made a number of records with them. Um, a lot of those records. And I, I know this, sound, I, I guess it's not egotistical, but that was my sound. When I heard records, I wanted that sound. I personally, that would, when it came up with um, uh, a break, a breakdown, I, I, can't, I didn't invent the breakdown, but it for me, it was natural. <laughs> I just, that was very instinctive. And it was funny if I had been in the music business 10 years before, I never would have made it because I would not have been aligned with what was going on. But I remember working with guys <clears throat> like Richie Quasar, called him Richie Quasar. And he would, he was a great guy. And he would say, you should come to the studio and you know, use Studio 54, come and listen. And I, I just didn't have the time. And we're sitting there on his off night making records. And we would, I had been invited to a number of clubs. So I just never made it into clubs. The first guy that I worked with as a, with a, a first producer I worked with who told me his work process was Arthur Baker. And Arthur Baker uh, would come in the next day. And he'd say, this is cool. And he hit play on a little cassette machine. And we hear, he said, that's the sound. We're all like, okay. And some the, the keyboard player would play something and Arthur would vamp on that. So Arthur was one of the first guys that I met who was able to synthesize or you know, synthesize him what he heard in the club and make it and, and go forward. I have to... I have to say, whatever you heard with my name on it, as an engineer, obviously everybody, the producers or the, the other people gave the input, but it was so natural for me to hear these things, uh, echoes and uh, hi-hat way up front and things like that. I just, that was my feeling for that. Remember, at the same time, I'm working with all these weird uh <clears throat> arthur russell made records with him um <clears throat> the uh the stuff on z records uh 
that we started working with and they started asking me to produce and uh, for them. So Z Records wanted the disco thing, but they wanted it to be crazy. And the first records we made was called Sympho State Orchestra. And uh, they had Leroy wrote a song. Uh, Leroy Burgess wrote a song. And that was great. The other side of the record at the time was a classical song called Furelise. We did a disco version of that. You know anything about classical music, or if you're ever a four-year, five-year-old learning piano, that's what you learn. And their idea of disco was we have to destroy it. One day we came, he came in and he said, We we got this guy, we, we brought in, I think it was Alan Schwartzberg, famous drummer for all these records. He's either him or Jimmy Young. And Michael, uh, the owner of the record label, said, We need a we need a great disco drum. So he's in there playing at the time it's 120 beats per minute. So he's rock solid bass drum. Rewound the tape says, okay, now what? Michael says, that's it. So, okay, what do you mean? So we need three minutes of that. So I mixed the bass drum. Next thing I hear, what they did was they pressed up copies and gave them to all the uh, DJs in like the Mud Club and 84, all the punk clubs. So they could play this on top of screechy, crazy, new age music and make it disco. It was the times. That was the times. So anyway, we're, we're making records. And uh, so to make a long story short, we finally got a console which was automated, which meant that it would remember the, the faders. To give you an idea, in 1979, what that was like, and you can think of all your records you heard at that time that were automated. You had two tracks on the 24 track. And by the way, tell me if I'm getting too technical. You had two tracks of the 24 track you had to assign for automation. You recorded track one, then you took that in play, put on the other track and record and made adjustments. Sounds really good. Eventually, you had this really finesse mix except at the time the combination of the recording process and the quality of the technology meant every time you made a pass you lost 11 milliseconds of time now you and i know and you know this as a dj i mean you have a i i know as a dj like you're really accurate you must go crazy if something comes out of sync, right? But you at this point in your life, you're like a machine. You got this going, right? I I know I've heard your work. Let me tell you something. 11 milliseconds added up. All of a sudden, the thing you muted, muted out is there. All of a sudden, the vocal that you turned down for one beat isn't turned out. It was, oh, it's amazing. Sounds like, sounds like, ready everyone? Nightmare. Thank you. <laughs> on Blank Street. <laughs> on Blank Production Street. You know, he, he, what he's talking about on the tape is a sync code. It sounds like, like that. It goes on the code. It's coded. Later, which was become empty time code we use later. But this is the first initial code that he would put on. And as the tape stretches and then as the night goes on, that's what happens. The yeah. beats get further and further. It's like a like someone hitting a truck. It's like, ka-dum, ka-dum. so he would hit mute where the kick drum's supposed to hit. 
It's not there. It'd be after the kick drum. It was like, now what? Because you're spending hours doing mutes and arrangements, play it back, and everything is wrong. Now what do you do? Kind of do everything. And so another thing is, back in the day, we had a, a really the state of the art console at the time, four band EQ, you know, EQ low mid, two mids and highs. We had all this outboard equipment, you know, which now is selling for millions of dollars. But at the time was, you know, we had bought a compressor for 200 bucks off the street or this guy well we have all this stuff and you do all this work and it's six in the morning and you're leaving and then you realize what happens if we have to change anything that so we had these sheets made up and we'd go in there and hand mark all the settings and everything it was it was a nightmare and as we know with anything analog it it changes it floats you know uh, a setting which really works on Monday doesn't work on Tuesday. Anyway, you got to give all these guys who made these records at the time a hand because it was hard to do. So <clears throat> just to give you an example. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, that's that's what happened. And as I started <clears throat> making records for Z Records and we did uh, the first uh, Kid Creole Coconuts album and... Uh, we started working on a lot of these fairly sophisticated things. The studio had gotten very, very popular. Uh, I remember one night, <clears throat> I'm in one room, uh, the B-52s are in another room, the Talking Heads are in a third room. It became it was a really happening place. And <clears throat> everybody would walk up and down the hall in this loft building, and they'd all meet each other and, come on, what do you think of this? And let's do that. It was very interactive. So it's really cool. Um, the only person who did not was not interactive was Walter Gibbons. So Walter, who's a legend, <clears throat> I started working with him way back. And <clears throat> we got to a point where he, I would set the board up for him and he would actually make pieces. You know, here's a piece about the drums, this and that, put it all together. And he would go in the back of our studio. We had an editing room. He put himself in there for two days, and that's it. And you'll see on if you look on the internet, there's a few pictures of of Walter in the studio. Most of them are in my studio with me in there, but you'll never see me at the board. He'll be, it'll, I'll have done all the work. He'll show up and he'll make pieces, and it was great. But he never he never interacted with anybody. But all the other DJs and everything, there were it was it was a golden era for that. You know, everybody would listen. They go. That's a great idea. Let's try that tomorrow. So anyway, I <clears throat> um, just wanted to get into what can I, can I intervene. Can I intervene real quick on something? Yeah. So some of the producers I know that did some of those records Walter mixed told me the stories years later when they heard the record come back from what Walter did. <laughs> oh, they so angry. I think one of them was Joe Tucci was telling me a record that Walter had made of his. And he said, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Why did he screw it all up? This is what came back to the record label. Record label says, no, we believe in it because Walter was at Galaxy. He was playing. He had influence. And he starts running these records that Bob and them are mixing. 
is changing everything what the producers in their minds and hearts put together they would send the multi-tracks to Bob and Bob would do his magic and Walter would go in there and maybe make the congas really loud and accentuate parts that they were like that's not supposed to be soloed yeah. so could you imagine them calling the record you effing mother son of a blah, blah, blah. hate the mix and you know the record label is calling Bob the next day. You know, like somehow they're calling Bob, saying, "Bob, what is he doing over there?" I can imagine that phone call coming to Bob. Yeah, exactly. This is this is what would happen too. <clears throat> Tell us what was going on. Yes. This is why I, I mentioned Tom Walton again. Tom is down in Philly. Literally, they would finish the project at the studio, then he would come and do a mix. He was very close down there, and everybody knew him, and he knew everybody. And the record label, you know, he he was constrained. He didn't want somebody to murder him for doing and messing up his record. Up in New York, which is where their offices were, uh, Sunshine and Ken Carey would come there, and they'd go, yeah, it's all great, it's all great. Uh, when we were making I Got My Mind Made Up, this is a this is a typical story of this. Uh, the short story of this is originally that was kind of an eight track demo by Instant Funk. We transferred it to twenty four track, and then we're starting to work on the record. And it just you know it was the Bunny Sigler uh, who wrote it, and every, it was all it was great. It was all in there, but it it was basically a three minute R and B record, and it was like forgettable. I remember Ken Carey coming in, who knows nothing about engineering or mixing, sitting there and he's saying that he's holding the fader and on the bass. And if you remember the record goes, and he did that just out of whatever, you know, I give him a lot of credit. He was cool enough to spend his money to do this. And everybody said, yeah, it's pretty good. So we finished the record. We made that record based on that kind of stuff. And when Bunny heard it, who was the producer, Bunny was always very cool. I worked with him for years. He was like, yeah, it's okay. But no matter what happened with the DJ, no matter what the thing, he would always come in the next day and do another mix, hopefully incorporating the good parts. When I got my mind made up, <clears throat> was finished, it was a, a very, once again a big hit and, and did that. To this day, every six months, I get a call. Bob, do you have the multi-track for that? You know, I'd really like to make a, you know, if, do you have like just maybe the tracks separated? So this is, the, this is the sad part of disco. So Sal Soul Records um, was being distributed by was started with Columbia, then went to RCA, and then they had a falling out. Technically, RCA owned their catalog. So we started making these stupid records towards the end of their association with RCA. And RCA called the studio and said, we own these masters. We want them destroyed. I didn't hear about this. So they just, they came in with some trucks and took them out. I know Morales did dumpster dove and found a bunch of them, but all those, they were all gone. That was during the day when nobody even thought to hold that. It was like 1980. I was going to say, what time was that around? What year would you say? You remember? Finally threw everything out. 
84. I figured that when nobody cared about it, it was like, yeah, yeah. When disco, when uh, all that disco mania stopped, <clears throat> the tempos, we slowed the tempos down. Songs like Work That Body were now club songs and things. And the old stuff we did, push, push, in the bush, all those high energy things, they went a different way with high energy. So we started making these more real records, you know. And uh, so that other stuff was considered not valuable. These days, we're used to finding everything in the world on, on the internet. Alternate takes, uh, solo track of the Beatles singing. But disco was very disposable at that time. And as much as we might have loved this particular record or this particular thing, the record label didn't care about it. So anyway, so there, there we were. <clears throat> so I'm making record. One day, um, uh, Leroy and I, Leroy Burgess, I'm talking, and I said, we should make a record. We, I had made a record about four months before that called Spooks in Space, which was, as you can imagine, was a goofy record. Uh, Chris Wilshire and uh, Ronnie Rogers sang it. Ronnie wrote it. We did it in an hour in the studio. It was really cute. And uh, the record label says, yeah, start making make singles. So Leroy says, okay, I got songs. And you know, Leroy's music is very, is very heartfelt and very soulful. He says, I got this song called Over Like a Fat Rat. I'm thinking, at the time, my wife, uh, who was on the road with James Brown, said, perfect. Everybody knows what Over Like a Fat Rat means. Me? Look at this. I have no idea what that means. So Over Like, I'm sorry. Uh, it's about as, as racial as I'm going to get. So my wife says, Lola Blank, uh, she says, this is great. Everybody knows that phrase, and, and it really represents upward mobility and everything. Leroy comes in with um, uh, James Calloway, and, and they come in as a trio, and they play the song, and he sings it. And, of course, it's a great song. And the words, it's, it's, it's great. So uh, me being still being an egotist, I, I play guitar on it because I still, to this day, I played on every record I produced. As, if you hear the song, I'm playing. It's not like I'm playing a lot. So we make the record, and it really needs a, a, a vocalist because Leroy couldn't do it because he's not signed up. We tried uh, Jessica Cleves, who was with uh, Parliament Funkadelic, as uh, a family friend. Lola sang it. Lola has a great vocal. She sang, uh, sang, uh, sang on a lot of the records we produced, but she had too much energy. Uh, <clears throat> we used her sister, who was great. Can you, um, Bob, can you give us, so that people know what Lola is known for, her, her, one of her big songs? Oh, Lola, Lola Blank, uh, Wax the Van was a, a big, fairly big underground hit. And Look that up, everybody, while he's telling us, so you can hear what Lola's voice sounds like. You got it to play? No. No, I can't. No. If I play, we'll have oh, a clip. Okay. I'm telling everybody, look it up on YouTube. Listen to it while we're while we're, he's telling the story. She was she was um, she's super talented. 
She was a dancer and singer with James Brown on the road. And before that, she was with, um, what's her name, doing um, Ring My Bell. She sang on that track. That would be Anita Ward, the teacher. Right. <laughs> so, and that's, they performed there on that, on the video of that too. So, you know, she's, she, but she had a very, uh, a different style. And I had been <clears throat> working with Fonda. Uh, we had, we had, she had sung on the uh, Key Krill and the Coconuts first album. And she had done Deputy of Love, which is a record that, uh, was also done at the studio. So one day, <clears throat> um, Danny Weiss from Vanguard Records calls me up. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I know Danny. You know he's running the A and R for Vanguard Records, which I don't know if your history of Vanguard Records is they did folk music and real obscure stuff. He says I- I'm listening to this great record. Says. And I'm here with Greg Carmichael, and Greg says he produced it, and he just needs a whole bunch of money, and he'll get the master. Red Greg, Greg Carmichael, is the backbone of many of uh, Bumblebee Records, all the crazy stuff from that time. But, and he's an amazing-looking, cool guy. He's albino. He's Jamaican. He's fascinating character, but he's also a thief, so he... he well, they, wait, 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 wait. We know this. I know the story. Well, wait, 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 wait. Go ahead. Greg Carmichael, everybody. Look him up. But, Bob, he's in your building, correct? His office? Come on, you got to tell the story. And the guys, you're leaving out pieces that they're not going to understand. Let's rewind the tape a little bit. Okay, John Morales is hanging time with Greg Carmichael. John's doing mixes for him, and da 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 da. John's around Bob, and all that's going on too. It's all family thing because they're all in the same building. Listen to this building. One floor is Bob's, another one's here, another famous studios. They all them become very famous later, but this is all underground. Bob's probably the most famous studio at that time out of all of them because he's got all the right people coming through. So he says, Leroy Burgess records this tune with Bob Manning, the engineer. So and he's on the record playing. So Bob knows what's going on here. I'm, produce, I'm producing it. He's part way. of the team, production engineer. He's part of the whole thing. Yeah, I, it's my Carmichael go to Band Records, which is a jazz label. Because I know. Pinky worked there, if I remember. Ray Pinky Velasquez was there, too. He did the remix for Correct. We'll get to that after. But Pinky's there as well. But how the hell does they have this thing that they're playing over this? Who's what cassette or tape, a track? Who has what here? Because something happened. He has a tape of it. Um, Vanguard was on 23rd Street and 6th Avenue. I'm on 20th. And uh, Danny's cool guy. And he, he was trying to build a label. The label was, you know, to do R&B. So Greg Carmichael walked in with the music. And at this, remember, at this point, <clears throat> a lot of people had sung on it. And we were thinking if, you know, I, we had, I think we had sent it over to a couple of people. Um, <clears throat> pretty much in the, the way you heard it. And I said, Danny, he, he, he knew it was suspicious. He, he, said, he says, he owes you money. I said he owes me a million dollars. He has no, he has nothing on this. So I said, if you want to know the truth, 
you know, put them on. Greg goes, no, 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 I don't want to talk to Bob. No, I don't want to talk to Bob. So that was it. And I'm still friendly with Greg. I mean, I used to, he used to live uh, in Jersey when I lived in Hoboken. We would ride the path train together. It's just, you know, you can't stay mad at him, but he was trying to rob the record. So anyway, Danny loves it. And he thought using Fonda would be a great idea. Send over the master, gives me money. So he sends over, he says, here's what we've done to it. He plays it. And I'm going, who's all those other singers? Her uh, boyfriend at the time, who's an excellent singer, and her worked out all the arrangements and everything. It sounded great. And back and forth we went, back and forth and went. The record finished, and I thought it was a real good record. And Pinky made his remix of it. But I'll never forget how how close it was to, I mean, if, I mean, I'm glad Danny was honest about it. You know, he could have just taken the, the tracks, but it was, that was the, the record business in that, in those days. So we did Fat Rat and that became very successful. And I think the, uh, samples of that were used with SWV and a bunch of other things. And to this day, I'm, I'm really proud of that because and you'll see, if you look at my discography, a lot of Leroy's writing is part of that. I'm very proud of one thing. What used to happen back in the day was producers would add their names to the writing. And I never did any of that. So I don't see any money. So, Lee, if you're listening to this, I could use a few bucks. But I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Leroy's a legend to Leroy Burgess. He went through some knee replacement surgery and stuff. And he's been going to on he's on the mend as well. God bless him. He's still going strong. But let me ask you something about this, because Nashville created this situation. If the guy who's taking the garbage out is in the studio when they're writing the Nashville thing about the publishing, they'll get a piece of that. Back then, that didn't work like that back then, did it? You know, part of the writing. It in a way it did depending on how, how everybody fought for it. For instance, when we re remixed a record, my, my name is not on all the original records of Sal Sol. They don't have the engineer and part on it. It's on the albums these days, you'll see credits. <clears throat> now engineers receive a micro part of the royalties of the sale of a record. Back then, it was not that at all. Uh, when um, and I remember Leroy, was, I remember doing the demo with Leroy of the song Big Time for Rick James. And <clears throat> Lee came in with his crew and he did it. He sang it. It was really cool. It was great. And <clears throat> I remember how that record sounded because I did the demo of it. And I'm not too sure if they just used our track and finished it. But I heard the finished product. It was, I didn't hear any difference in the writing in the arrangement and i think rick james got, took a credit on it Probably. So, those days you know anyway uh so anyway another record that i i produced in that time of leroy's um was weekend by class action and once again leroy was a great writer um he had written it it come out on on the album freak and then it became obscure it was out of print and they were playing it in, in all the clubs but it was like a rare record we decided to redo it and make a new record of it 
And uh, Will Sokolov from Sleeping Bag Records actually came up with the idea. So this would be a great record to redo. So we, we made the record and we finished it. And it was very successful as a record, I thought. And uh, uh, even to this day, I know uh, Chris Wilshire performs to that track doing the record and uh, overseas and whatever. And I'll remember for years later, I would get guys saying, Bob, uh, somebody just, uh, there's a guy and he says, he made the music on that and he, you owe him money. And so, I, I went to Fred Zarr's house. We created a sequence. We recorded it. What are you talking about? And so, you know, that's that's the thing. You know, you find. Wait, 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 wait. What, do, what do you mean? Somebody <laughs> called me to say this is. Uh, you... <laughs> wait. I <laughs> called up. Who says he's a he's a he's a music producer? He says that's the track I used. You took the track that I used on this record and made this record. I said, no, I didn't. He says, yeah, it's identical. Well, might have had the same uh, tempo. And for four bars or two bars, it might have sounded like that, but it wasn't that. But, you know, uh, real creator don't have to do that. I mean, if you... Not that I'm not just saying I'm a real creator, but I'm saying we work with a, a good uh, a songwriter. They don't really have to steal some, you know, somebody else's idea. They do it. And the same with that. So, and by the way, you want to hear more bad guitar playing? I'm on that record, too. <laughs> Actually, to tell you the truth, it's pretty good, considering we've all danced to it and know the record inside. That's kind of funny. Yeah, more bad recording. I mean, sorry, for bad guitar work, listen to Christine Wilshire's version on Sleeping Bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought you worked with Patrick on the original album that he did with Freak for The Atlantic. Did you yes, know? I was the engineer on that. Yeah, so let's make sure you clarify that, because everybody needs to know that. You did the album Freak and the weekend song that Larry LeVan would play weekend and week out was your mix. You're the reason why. When Patrick, when finally everybody finally realized that Patrick was a genius, all of a sudden everybody wanted to work with him. And I remember we had in the studio, we we did all those records with him, Eddie Kendricks and uh, all the uh, stuff. At the same time, um, you know, we're doing these records and, you know, some, some are hits and some are not, but, uh, Pat was a very, it was, he was a very smart guy and he used Leroy and he wrote his own songs. I remember with him sitting in the, I have two stories about Patrick. One, I remember sitting in the control room <clears throat> and, uh, a, a singer came in and I don't know if it was Donna, um, McGee, uh, but a singer came in and he knew her or was whatever. And it was like, she was like coming to the King. Hi, I just someday, you know, just want here, here's my demo. And he did something like says, here's this song, go in and sing it. And it was very gracious. You know, of course it was on somebody else's money and it could have been a wasted evening or whatever, but he was very cool about that stuff. And the other thing I remember about Patrick, and I, I remember it this way, it might have been wrong. 
But I remember him sitting in the control room. This is how records worked in those days. I was, I was looking at my schedule and it was like, I was also doing uh, a Crown Heights Affair album. Plus I was working with Bunny Sigler. And I think we were doing Curtis Mayfield at night. And I'm like, we have this project and this and that. And I, and I basically, I said, I can't, I, there's only one of me. I can't do it. I'm flattered, but I can't do this, you know, like that. And I'm like, I remember at that time, somebody came in with an article from New York Magazine uh, about him. I said, Pat, you're in New York Magazine. And then it might have been at the same day, whatever, somebody delivered. He, or he walked in with his first royalty check from Push Push in the Bush. And it was more money than I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, th- there's times when... We're talking, we're talking like five zeros? I think maybe five or six. So he went from from living in one level to all of a sudden Mac Dad. And this is the 70s. That's some serious money because... You're making about $125 a week, $175 a week working at a job, pushing yeah. milk crates. So, you know, if you delivered papers, whatever, and you work for Daily News, you made $175 a week, you did good. You imagine somebody showing you a check for $125,000 or something like that. You're like, oh, in oh. one shot. It was amazing. And he was, um, you know, he, was got, he got busy. And it's not like, you know, it, he, somebody didn't give him the money. He earned all that money. I mean, oh, yeah. a superstar writer and a ranger and whatever. Uh, so one day, one day I'm sitting at home with my wife and my son. She goes, now I know how I know Patrick. What do you mean? Lola Blank, when she was called Lola Holman, was in the cast of a movie called Up the Down Staircase, which was in the early, late 60s. It was about a high school, and she was one of the kids in high school. Doug Riddick, who was in that video of, of the thing, and her have this moment where they're doing dirty dancing, and this is a cute little thing. Patrick's band is the band that's playing on stage. She goes, I know Patrick. We went to high school together. And it's so crazy. <laughs> It's not, it's, it's not like he just, you know, flew off the, you know, jumped out of the world. He's been doing it forever and doing great. But anyway, um, so the thing about the thing about the disco era was when we were working and working with people. And uh, I'll tell you now some pictures. Uh, if you'll put up um, number 17. This is what looking, recording was in those days. That's me in front. And that's uh, two of the guys from Instant Funk. And yes, if you wanted a bass part, you sat there and played it. If it didn't work, you played it again. So that's us working. And um, another picture, which is really strange, is number 16, which is me in my studio A with Busta Jones, who uh, is a pretty well-known artists at the time. And this was it. You know, we'd be sitting there and we'd be that close together making records. It wasn't like, um, and not saying this is a bad way of doing it, but it's not like I'm here and there's a guy over in Vienna recording the bass part and we're on Zoom talking about it. 
It was that close. We were like literally in each other's face. The so, way it should be. I think so. I think, I think it's the best way to make records is that we were all together. It's the right way. It just felt right. Put up, if you don't mind putting up number 19, this is going back in time. This is in the early 70s. That's me on the, in the right with the uh, Che Guevara uh, beard and everything. The middle is Eddie Martinez. Uh, below in the bottom in the center is Ruben Blades. Woman to the right is um, Tito Rodriguez's junior's mom. And of course, Tito and his sister to uh, our, to the left of Eddie. And literally, this is what, we, I mean, this is what it was like. The, the control room was tiny. Uh, it was a family affair. We made records. We were all together. And because of that interaction, that's why these records have that soulful feeling. You know, as, as records got more and more sophisticated, it was easier to work with. Yeah, we, you know, we, we, we went that direction. But I thought, I think this, this period is the time. If you'll go, if you look at number seven, this is me a few years ago. And of course, here I am in front of a giant SSL console recording direct to Pro Tools, a live band. And then I would take I take the thing and make an edit and everything. But it's not the same kind of thing. It's not the same. If you put up number six, this is sorry. You know, I'm there, there's a bunch of live musicians and recording it. And as we know, that old cliche, the engineer pushed the talk back, says, Yeah, that was terrible. Come on in. It's, we'll we'll fix it up in Pro Tools, you know. Yeah, right. We'll fix. Don't worry about it. We'll edit that and slide it over in a second. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, oh, no, we got to retrack it again. No, 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 no. You don't have to retrack it again. Yeah. So anyway, almost finished with my life story. So we well, just added, I, had moved to, I had moved to, um, uh, we were in Hoboken for a few years. I finally sold the studio. So I sold blank tapes uh, to a consortium of people and uh, moved everything up to uh, Stanford, Connecticut. And I had a big uh, facility up there and uh, started making records there. Um, I would have uh, people like uh, Dave Shaw would come up and Paul Simpson, and they would come up. And we, uh, I remember we did the Chaka Khan album there. And uh, if you put up number one, this is the studio we had. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was good. It was good. We also had... Um, a giant a pool and the whole bit. So it's really luxury, you know, it's really luxury. Um, and uh, that's that's what, what happened. So we were making, we, we got to that point and uh, I had stopped working on records uh, until Dave started bringing up all this crazy stuff. And, uh, we, or, and we would work with people like Phil Ramone with Phoebe Snow and all these, these, these kind of artists in that environment, very fancy. But the disco days were the, the coolest, that's for sure. So now, um, so then around 2000, you know, I, I, I'm making dance records, right? You know, I'm st sitting at the console. Here's me at the console. 
right? I'm jumping back and forth. I'm married to a professional dancer. I'm making dance records. But I didn't know how to dance. So uh, my son and my wife moved to California, start working on his TV show. It's another thing. And she said, you know, you should have a social life. Maybe take a few dance lessons. So as immersed as I was in the dance music business, uh, I met a uh, woman and we started dancing together. If you'll put up picture number five, this is us in 2015. This is my my ex-partner, Martha Estevez. We danced together for 20 years, traveling around the world. That's in Paris at the World Championships. And uh, one more picture, number eight. We were the part of the world team, and that's me in Barcelona. I just, I'm just always, so yeah, I don't know how to dance to disco. I now teach disco dancing. I teach hustle and those things, but uh, <laughs> that's where I wound up. Wow. Yeah. Do you still record today? Anything or you stopped completely? I'm, I've been working for a few years with the musicians. I've been working with Arthur Russell for many years. If anybody doesn't know, remember Arthur Russell, he was Dinosaur L, Kiss Me Again. Uh, we did um, Is It All Over My Face, a lot, of, a lot of records from that era. Arthur was this really obscure cellist who made these records, and I continued to work with him. Uh, he's brilliant. We always had a lot of fun. He wound up coming up to my studio. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, and uh, from AIDS. And the musicians that I worked with from that formed a band called Arthur's Landing. And I work with them to this day. Uh, we did some recording uh, and um, we're going back in the studio probably uh, early next year since the pandemic's over. It's very organic. It's, it's sort of like uh, jazzy funk. It's very unusual. You know any of Arthur, you, pull up any Arthur Russell and take a listen to some of his stuff. It's like that. It's like... Uh, it's very organic. Yeah. Very yeah. organic sounding. Very earthy. When his cello, cello plays, the way he plays his cello, he plays it in a different range. So sometimes it doesn't sound like a cello the way he played it. More, more in a higher range. It's wild. He was great. Uh, he wrote Wax the Band, which uh, uh, Lola sang. And uh, the, the demo of Wax the Band is hysterical. I mean, he's singing that part, but he's on the record. He's got Who Me, Wax the Band. And he's extremely funky. And uh, he had this other side to him as well, which was very uh, crazy. Anyway, we worked for years. I'm working with uh, Stephen Hall and the band uh, Arthur's Landing. And uh, it's very fulfilling, but it's... Those pictures of me at the SSL were from those sessions that I did recently. Uh, it's great. Yeah, everyone, he still works. He's still, he, you know, he's still up to date and still doing it. He likes to work on Pro Tools. He tracks instead of going to a tape machine, he does it all digitally, but he's using analog. You know, the question I have is when you built your Fairchild and stuff, the Fairchild, the first board and things, even the MCI console, 
you went direct from those mics into those mic pre's on that console, or were you using outboard stuff to get that sound back at blank? First of all, the MCI was the first inline commercially sold console. If you bought that console, you paid money, you put set it up, it worked. Nobody thought of using external preamps. Nobody thought of that. There were there was a patch bay. Maybe I would what I my my uh, go to. I had an old mic that I bought from Jerry Ragavoy at the Hit Factory before it became the Hit Factory. Jerry Ragavoy wrote "Time Is on My Side" and a lot of classics. So I bought him bought this microphone and two compressors. Mike, I think I spent $150 for a U48 microphone, Neumann. Neumann. Yeah. And the LA-2As, I think I paid 50 bucks a piece for. And they were, you know, whatever. And so my go-to was set the mic up, go through the, uh, the mic pre on the board, and then go out to the compressor, which is a normal way of doing it. And that was it. All those records are made through consoles. There was no, this whole thing about analog. And I get it. You know, people are like, I love it. I have the sound. I plug in this preamp or whatever. And it's great. But all that stuff was went through um, uh, TLO-41. I integrated circuits. And the MCI had this uh, equivalent integrated circuit called the 2001. And so... That was in the board, and you just you didn't think about using something outboard. If you look at uh, pictures of any studio back in those days, it was, the only outboard was was that we had um, we did the uh, Keep on Jumping album. We didn't even have an echo chamber. We had a BX10 Spring Reverb, and that's what we used. It was very expensive to have an outboard equipment. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about the verbs and stuff. Were you setting up these real rooms like Sigma did in the early days? Like Joe, Joe talks about that, that they had the microphones and they put this room and they made this like reverb setup. Did you have to do that as well? Or were you just able to buy a, an actual reverb unit? Joe was before my time in the sense that he was around, Sigma started in the late 50s. And at the time... The only, in 1958, they invented the plate reverb, EMT. So that, you could put sound in it and sound like an echo chamber. Before that, you didn't. Uh, when I started the studio, I could only afford a BX-10. We put it in under the ceiling uh, overhead. Um, the, 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 the thing had changed, and the style was dead, super dead rooms. So you, the idea was... You put a drummer next to a singer and you wouldn't hear any leakage. So everything was mixed in through the echo chambers, but we didn't have space. This New York City loft building, we didn't really have space for what you're talking about, a, a natural chamber. So we just used that. Eventually, we bought a, a cheap version of the EMT. It was uh, called the plate. Playing used those. But... Um, <clears throat> Once again, I, I'm really impressed at people who are running these all analog studios and they say, we're recording to tape and we're editing and everything. We were, we were, we could not in our wildest dreams be, think about that happening. We had the option or the ability to uh, do something like push a button and have a repeating echo. It was like, 
I can't believe it. Because back in the day, you want something to repeat, you set up a tape machine, you varied the speed with an oscillator, sort of matched it up. And since it was a live band, they didn't keep the same tempo. For that section, echo, 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 echo. You'll hear the echo on, um, on Keep On Jumping. It's not synced up to the music. It's just like some random echo. Who had time to set that up? So um, I, I have a lot of respect for people who are keeping the analog world alive. And just, but just remember, all that stuff was recorded on the machinery you saw there. Most of the sound, the sound of those big bass drums, were drummers like Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Young and Alan Schwartzberg. And uh, the, the sound, the big sound of the bass was they brought in a bass and they played it like that. Okay. So what you're hearing is what you're getting from the actual musician. Okay, so, you know, we're going to give you homage to something that's one of the greatest records we heard mixed, and we need to know a little back end to it. It's a Patrick Adams production of him redoing a Diana Ross record, Ain't a Mountain High Enough. Okay, so are you involved? You're involved in all that, aren't you? You're the yes, guy. I was involved in the. So tell us. Okay, so basically, start from where this, where is it done, and how does it go? The whole thing. Well, so the, the the what makes that Patrick's version great is his arrangement. He arranged that. You know, Jocelyn sang it. She brought Jocelyn Brown sang it. She arranged the singers. Um. The record was recorded. Uh, we came in the studio, did some overdubs, whatever. <clears throat> we had a little studio between Studio A and Studio C, which we eventually moved that little tiny MCI console in, and we had a booth that would hold three singers. Back in those days, it was you could do that. So we bring the singer, he brings the singers in, we're recording the, the singing. Jocelyn's brilliant. She brought in... Um, I'm sorry, Jocelyn, I forget who was in the thing, but um, uh, her and um, the other two singers, and they sang the parts. And she, but Jocelyn's really good at arrangements, you know. And we all knew that Diana Ross's version was, there was a release, ain't no mountain high enough, but her singing the part was, was small and intimate, right? It's a Nashford and Simpson song. You know, so it has that R&B feel. When Jocelyn uh, said, oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so Jocelyn arranged the vocals. And we recorded it, and we started mixing it. And it was super dynamic. It was super dynamic. And I was involved in some of the recording of it, and virtually all the stuff that you hear on that record outside of the rhythm track section and the strings was recorded in a little tiny room. And once again, I give Patrick a lot of credit because his arrangement makes it gigantic sounding. Uh, uh, then this four minute version got cut up and turned, in, turned into this epic, which kept building. What you would do in those days is you'd have um the uh the beginning for instance you repeat it etc etc just like any other disco record but it's really hard to do that when you only have what's on the rec on the tape and the tape is not necessarily you can't necessarily take 
something in the middle and put it at the beginning because the tempo is wrong or the feel is wrong. So that's, I, I give, uh, I give um, the musicians that recorded it a lot of credit because it had a lot of energy from beginning to end. You know, we're talking about, uh, I know Ken Mazur is playing the guitar on that. Um, uh, sorry, I don't have the, 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 the it's sheet. Okay. It's okay. The, the thing is, is that when the record comes out in 82, I think, or 81, was it 81? We see the Larry LeVan Garage version, you know, that starts to um the record that everybody talks about, that long, long version. Well, we remixed that. So let's go on to now. We know you did the production, you're part of that whole engineering process of Patrick and building the record. So the Salso picks the record up, I guess, or whatever happens. And later on, on our end, the record buyers are looking at it from the white label comes as Larry LeVan Garage Mix. So you got to give us what happened from South Soul in between. <laughs> what, what, what went down, Bob? Well, I made many, did many records with Larry. Uh, he, he remixed Weekend, of my re, me, uh, Weekend. I, I feel bad Larry's no longer with us. Um, a lot of the people involved in those kind of records, like Mel Sharon, they're not, still not here. And I hope you understand where this is coming from when I talk about this. But Larry, Larry had a lot of problems. Um, he had a, uh, he didn't make it to many of the sessions I did. Uh, he was either, you know, he just did not make it. He's a very young guy, and he had uh, issues with uh, uh, substances. So. <clears throat> We're trying to mix the record, and he's not around. He's not around. And so we made the record as best we could. Having that, and I, I hope everybody understands that this is not to knock him. It just shows how powerful he was in the music business at the time. Having his name on that record pretty much guaranteed people would buy it or listen to it. And he was, I, think, I, I know he, he had some input on the record. He wasn't involved in the, the final thing that came out. But uh, that's what that was. And when we were making those records, like I said, and I, uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, that was, these records are how I felt at the time. Okay, so to clarify and there was always a question mark on it. Was Larry truly around? I mean, we knew he was playing at the club. He was breaking his records. And, you know, WBS Frankie Crocker was picking records up. And we all know that story. But, but on a side note, I give John Morales a lot of credit. John had said to me he was also involved with mixing that record. And yeah. he never properly ever credited because of... He tells the story the same as you, but he says it a little bit differently. So... You know, Remember, John, John influenced a lot of the music at that time in a very different way. I mean, you can see when I, when I say I was the engineer, I, I did it. I did what I did. It's in my studio, you know, whatever. John influenced a lot of that music because he would do things like uh, he would take home a mix. He would make a mix of Ain't No Mountain Heine, come back and have a tape of what he did. And he'd edit it or whatever he did. And everybody working on the record would also hear that. 
And because of the the way the times were, he didn't get credit for that. But, you know, he created some of those breaks. He created a lot of the feel. And if, if you know John, he's extremely modest and he gives everybody credit for his work. And uh, I, I can tell you that he influenced so many productions because, you know, he was a maniac. Can you imagine this? Session would start at 7 p.m. And he'd come in and hang out. He'd be in the back of the room. We had a, every, every studio had a couch in the back. He'd be there. Maybe he, he might be the guy who ordered the food. He said, I don't know. He was so humble. He'd do all this stuff. And no matter what, how much involvement he had at the end of the night, you knew John got to sit at the console and put a tape on. And everybody respected the fact that he was so sincere about it and how uh, he did it. And you could not miss what he did. Now, I'm like, here is an example. I'm sitting. I remember working on uh, records with DJs and they'd say, let's do this. And very specifically at bar eight, we'll do this. And we do all this stuff. We do all this stuff. And then you listen back to it and you make corrections. John would do his thing with, with mixes and everybody thing. It's not like sometimes everybody went home, but many times everybody just was there. You know, you might be putting your coat on and all of a sudden you're hearing this interesting idea for a break. You know, he didn't have the the clout that a guy like Larry Levan had to get his name on it. But everybody in the business knew that John was there. Here's an example. Mary Lou Records, To Be With You, the first record, disco record I work on. John was there. He was there with those guys. And he's... Um, oh, he's, he was on the scene forever. Ben Sekic, when he Ben, when they were doing those Ben Sekic records of uh, that every every week they were doing another version of another one bites the dust with another thing. John was there. He was involved in tons of stuff. So, so hope that answers the question. Of, writing, oh my God, the truth finally is clear. <laughs> The Salso album of First Choice Double Cross, for example, those re-edits that we heard on the Larry Levan album, we know was done at your spot. Yeah. What was the story with that? Because those they, they pulled 12 inches and the mixes are completely different than what came from Philly. What was you what were you doing? You took the multi-tracks? What was going on? Was Larry that in that session as well? Or were you handling the game? Because we know you're talented. There's no doubt with that. And we know you have the engineering skills and you know what time it is and you know how to, you know, get the sound that is necessary to make everybody's record sound buff, polished and finished. But so many ideas are coming from the DJs or were they not come from the DJ? Sure. Oh, listen, G DJs shaped the music and they always did from the beginning. If, if I want to pat myself on the back and say, there's this or there's that, remember, you know, nobody, paid me to go in there by myself. They all paid. There was always a Bobby DJ or there was uh, uh, Tom Savarese. I did my first album. It says produced by Bob Blank and in bigger, as bigger letters than my name, mixed up by Savarese. And I totally get it. Tom was very, Tom Savarese was very clever and did a lot of stuff. There's always, the DJs always formed this stuff. But 
there's a lot going on in making a record. When uh, we would make pieces, or John would make pieces, or I would make pieces, and we'd put together something. We'd make, um, I had a thing for a long time where I would only use virgin tape. So if I made a 30-second piece of a break, you know, recording it, and I didn't get all the hits, no problem, we'd go after that. So there were ton- there was tons of tape at the time with just the, the congas or this or that. And those were made up from pieces from that. Um, Larry would not, I, I, all the times I worked with him, and I worked on that and a lot of the stuff for West End with him, I don't ever remember him saying, take, take that next day and double that, you know, or let's uh, wind that back and take out the bass. He was, he was very influential in the sense that if he liked what was going, actually, to give him tremendous credit, if he liked what was going on, he didn't say anything. That makes him a genius. You know, I, my, my definition of a producer is somebody who allows things to happen. You know, Yoey, in that video of me on 60 Minutes, it's a little hammed up. You can't, you don't hear the audio, but the producer saying, you know, in this music, you gotta push this and all this stuff. It never happens like that. And to be honest with you, a great producer. Uh, one more stupid story. I hope this. No, 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 Bob, no, Bob, this is historical. Please. Even if you think it's stupid, we, we you have to understand us as DJs, lovers of the of the craft, producers, remixers, we all want to hear all these silliness. It makes all these things come together. So please, none of it's stupid. Go ahead. So one day I'm working for this label called Adelphi Records. So it's a it's a label that does jazz. <clears throat> and it's the booking is Johnny Copeland who's a blues artist. And the producer is a guy named Dan Doyle, a really nice guy who I knew through jazz. So we're all set up and the band's about to play. And Dan walks in, I swear to God, he's got a mug of beer and he's standing there and he goes, and then he gets another mug of beer. And I, I, I don't drink, not for any other reason that I don't. I said, what are you doing, Dan? This is nuts. You're the, what's going to happen? He goes, no, you don't understand. I enjoy this band. When I see him at a club and I've had a couple of beers and it's a the great vibe and I'll know that it works. And I respected him. The band plays, he's playing, you know, whatever. And Dan's standing in the corner and he's drinking the beers and he's like this. And he didn't say a word for the whole record. Record won a Grammy. Because he was smart enough to say, it's all, it's fine. They're doing it. You know, he didn't have to stand up and say, let's take that from bar 12. And, you know, I always remembered that. And I remembered that when I was producing, for instance, Arthur's Landing, these are really esoteric, obscure, crazy people. I'm smart enough to know not to tell them what to do. Let them do it. I mean, in the end, I can, I can take this part and move it to that part, but. That's what a producer does. And I think to give Larry a lot of credit, he didn't step on a lot of toes. And uh, he was cool enough that way. Now, then again, if he didn't like it, he he was unable to tell you why or how to fix it. But I give him some credit 
that he knew that with me or the other people that he was around knew how to do it. He said, this isn't happening. Try something. Then he says, now it's happening. Nobody has to know how it happens. It just happened. Yeah. So did you mix, did you mix C is for cookie? <laughs> well, Larry, did you mix that too? I just did a spit take. I'm not <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to be great. <laughs> did you mix the C's? No, I'm serious. Did you mix the C's for Cookie? I mean, I'm trying to remember that. I mean, that's one of the first records I heard that he steps out as a remixer. Him yeah. on one side, Roy Thoat on the other. All right. No, no. And remember, Roy. <laughs> Roy Thoat, everyone. Here we go. Another legend. May he rest in peace, too. Yeah. These All guys, right. remember, the guys who are making records, even. Um, uh, Schlachter over at, at Prelude eventually wound up, you know, with people around him who loved the stuff. He was, he was a businessman. But West End was Mel Sharon. And Mel Sharon was like a big fan of the garage. And he was very, very happy to make records just focused like that, you know, which was why West End records were so cool, you know, bombers and all that stuff. Did you have Francois? Because Francois was working for Marvin Schlachter. Was he also working at Blank as well? Or was he over at Sunshine doing edits? I know he was doing No, no, no. I think, I don't know if this was his first, but Francois did the remix on Push, Push in the Bush. And with me, Francois, at that time, did not know how to, he did not know enough English. And he's standing there, and I, I kid him, I've kidded him about this. And Francois, if you're listening, he's just, he's, he says, boom, 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 the boom, boom, boom. And oh, bass drum. And he says, yeah. And we made that, the remix of that. And I don't know how that came out, whatever, whatever. But I remember working with him on that, and it was, <laughs> it was like, oh, great. I know, ooh, I love bibliotech. I know three were three sentences from my high school French, you know. <laughs> Maybe he knew a lot of English, but he didn't talk very much with me. So so basically, blank recording, or should I say blank productions, the studio, okay. and you are a first for many people that that let's let's go down the quick line. I mean, you had Tom Savarese, which was a hot DJ, Flamingos and 12 West. You had Larry Levan, you had John Morales up and coming because no. not too long after he gets a job on WBLS and he starts mixing records and stuff, right? I think Sergio Montsabai and John, um, they met at Blank Tapes. Right. I mean, that's the only, yeah. There you go. Sergio there. Sergio too. I, yeah. mean, you, I mean, talk about being like the virgin place, making history, but doesn't get the Philly International like you know, luster that Philly gets, like blank recordings. Let's put like this blank productions and blank recordings for us is our New York Sigma, Philly, Tom Moulton S thing that happened at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Blank tapes um, existed in the New York thing. Remember at the time, by the time I really started getting in, in the late seventies, I had recorded 70 Latin albums. I was working with musicians, New York musicians, and, and the whole thing. And when we started making these records more, when Ken Carey started sending over the tapes, you know, I was like, we're going to mix this, we're going to mix this. We're gonna mix this. 
all these, the ones that came from Philly, they expected us to add our thing to it. You know what I'm saying? They didn't want uh, it to, because um, if you turned up the tracks on on those those records, they were great. You know, all the, the uh, salsa orchestra and everything. Bob, can you clarify this? Was Salso's premise to be a Latin label totally? So Salso Records started out, they were originally um, a distribution arm of Columbia Records. And Salso started out making um, Latin records, very high-end Latin, high-level Latin records. And then when they started getting into the disco, we had that. But remember, Salso still made... Latin records. I remember working with Andy Gonzalez and Andy and Jerry Gonzalez on their album. And whereas there was no budget, it was like, no, you got to make a great record. That's, I, I was impressed. Cause no budget. no budget. There was no budget. It was like, you just do it. It's, it's got to be great. And the, um, well, wait, wait a minute. So how much did it cost to do a record? In those days, like give us what an indication when they say money's no object. What are we talking? So, uh, in the mid seventies, a, a, a rock record would get a quarter of a million dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. Because remember, studio time was not cheap. At the end, we were charging one hundred and forty dollars an hour for sixteen track, twenty four track. An R and B record would be twenty five grand. We did. Um, um, the Crown Heights Affair, for instance, or uh, any of the <clears throat> R&B bands that we worked with. Latin records, it was like, it was like you have six hours to cut the tracks, you have ten hours to do the vocals, you have uh, five hours to fix the tracks, and and eight hours to mix it. So you're talking thirty hours, maybe, from start so, to finish. So a hundred dollars an hour. $3,000. Wow, that's a lot of money. So, you know, I never added it up like that. Here's a here's an interesting story. Um, Soy came from Karanga 76. The producer, Ira Hershey, came in. He had worked with a group called Orchestra Broadway. He was the keyboard player from Orchestra Broadway, which is a pretty well-known band at the time. So <clears throat> Ira came in and said, we have a blank check. What do you mean, sister? We have to do the Sgt. Peppers of Latin music. Okay. With a charanga band, right? So it's so cool. So we go in, it's, there's no budget. So we start working, we start working. And after about two weeks, it's like, we got to finish it because we're out of money. <laughs> it's like, what? How did, do you think Sgt. Peppers happened? They said after two weeks, sorry, John and Paul, that's it. You got to get out of the studio. And uh, the record is a great record. And we eventually talked them into spending more money, but there was very little money in, in the Latin field. And the bands, you basically came in and played that stuff live. Nowadays, Latin music is recorded in an entirely different way. But if you went back and listened to, for instance, Son of Latin Music, Eddie Palmieri, the first Latin Grammy, right? That was all, that was the band playing live, you know, and they put singers on it. It's very impressive, you know, sound. Very impressive. It just it just made me think as you were talking about Latin, if you mix this record had anything to do with it, uh the artist Alfredo de la Fe. Alfredo de la Fe is in the 
Yes, yes, Alfredo Alfredo, yes, yes. That was a record we all knew that was a big underground dance record, disco record, but he's got that English version that he sings. As a, he's a Latin performer. They weren't uh-huh. sure if you did that record or not. Did you work on that? <sighs> well, I'm looking at it right now, and I'm looking at the things in the 80s he sang with... Uh, da, da, da. Oh, it's in the se- this record's in the 70s, this record. Him. Yeah, well, he was born in the 54, so that would make sense he would do that with Eddie Palmieri. Let me I look can't remember the name. Of the- I-, I used to play the record all the time. Da, 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 da. It's got the, the Charanga uh, violins in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get it. You know, it's really crazy, too, with, with Latin music. I mean, these, these people... I have nothing but respect for Latin bands. There's a cliche, there's no such thing as a bad Latin band. Because even when the band can't play very well, it's still arrangements and all this great stuff, right? So, um, Hot to Trot. Hot to Trot was the record. Sorry. No, I, I wasn't involved in that one. Okay. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. But these guys were um, really talented. I worked on Willie Colon's one record. For di- disco record that uh, set fire to excuse me set fire to me yes um, with uh, Yvonne Turner produced it with uh, Carol Cooper and uh, that was an interesting story Yvonne is very under unsung hero of the, of the yes, disco sir. music world Carol Cooper was uh, a, a writer for Rolling Stone magazine and other things and uh, she and Yvonne were in the studio, and I remember uh, I remember Willie Colon coming in, and I'm I'm a big fan of his, and I said, "We need, you know, are, are you going to play on this? Are you going to play your trombone?" He goes, "No, no, man, I'm a street trombone player. I'm nothing." When you think of Willie Willie Colon, that really funky thing, right? And Yvonne was very cool. She says, no, no, it's got, this is all got to be about, it's got to sound like you. We're not making a record with your name on it. It's a record with you in it. I remember saying, and maybe it wasn't those exact words, but she was brilliant to say that. But, uh, Bob, incredible. (laughs) You have cleared up. So, oh, one other question I have to ask before I let you go. Yes. You know, the, the drummers that all played in your studio, was, did you guys have a click track for these disco drummers, or were they just play straight off their own rhythm, off their own body clock? So, okay. A click track in the 70s was literally a box made by Yuri, and it was said click track, and you had thumb wheel nut settings. So if you want to set it, you couldn't set it for 120 beats per minute. You had to set it in feet and frames because click tracks were made for syncing up to, uh, uh, to to film. So the great drummers of the time did not want to click track. I remember Jimmy Young uh, would come in and, and sit there for hours and just, he just didn't use a click track. But towards the, as, as 19, early 80s started, and drum machines started happening, when the first DMX came in and everything, all of a sudden it was like, got it. We can just keep this steady. But before that, um, you could, you know, when we're doing movies, or scoring and everything, or you're doing a commercial, you use a click track because at bar 17, something had to happen, so this had to happen. 
these guys were these guys were were great musicians. The reason why I mention that is because you know I I sat with Earl Young from the Tramps and Earl played on thousands of those records, as you know. Mm-hmm. And having his own band, the Tramps, and being the, the baritone singer and such and such. And I asked Earl that question, and Earl said, "No, it would be him, Ron Baker, and Norman Harris, and they would be the actual." rhythm section and they worked off each other they would want two three and boom and that's how they played it there was no click track so if he slowed up they all slowed up and First sometimes time. records as a dj when he's going it's like the 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 timing goes all over the place so yeah i first worked with norman harris in the early 70s he came in and produced some stuff in new york and that Baker Harris Young album on Sal Soul, I engineered. One day, Ken Carey sent over a couple of multi-track tapes. He says, here, we got to use these. He, Ken had had Earl Young play solo, you know, and, and Earl's, Earl's a musician, so he played an intro, this, had a release, the whole thing. Just, he sent, Ken sent over multi-tracks of of him playing he says well, well um i had him do this because there's no other drummer who's so accurate and has such a feel because it's it's really hard to play with a click track and have feel but it's really really hard to play live have a feel and keep the beat and uh, earl was great he was really great and he was very um very modest about it but i remember these tapes it was like uh song number one and song number 12 and but i thought that was crazy you know that they would hire him to just play drums yeah because at the end of the day when you really think about the four four kick drum straight four beats to every measure pre to him there was nobody really doing that he's got to be the guy that lays down that beat and makes it famous right that's um, I know that um, <clears throat> that's what happened on Got My Mind Made Up because that wasn't um, <clears throat> uh, we had to bring in a drummer to play the four and the four and because the track had been recorded live it was a nightmare like after eight bars oh we drifted we got to do this and that but if if it was a salsa track that he played on it was cool. That's what he means, right? There, the instant funk band, yeah, instant funk band. So we, the original drummer, so the Bundino, or should I say, Bunny Sigler, had it as a boom, boom, you know that that double two four feel, right? Where he's playing the kick. It was R and B, yeah. It was R and B. We added the cowbell, but that was what the drums were really originally doing. It's more like that, you know. The original record didn't had didn't have that in solo. It was a three minute R and B record, and it started with the chorus. Da, 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 da. Bunny was very smart. He had uh, he had used instant funk as the band when they recorded Shame for Evelyn Champagne King. He said these guys are really good. He started making them their house band. Oh, really? So that's the behind the scenes for Shame. Yeah, yeah. They, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And Larry Davis is still, they're still 
playing and I think he's, I don't, I guess they're still in Philly playing music and everything. Oh yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Any, any, any tips for us to not do? If you now that you're older and you're talking to the young uh, Bob Blank, <laughs> what you say Don't to Bob Blank? Business. <laughs> Don't go into business. I, I'm saying it every time. Everybody, leave now. Quietly, shut the door. Okay, go ahead, Bob. Tell us. Actually, this is a wonderful time to make music because you have so many tools at your disposal. When I saw GarageBand free with a Mac, I thought. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I thought, well, this is great. Everybody can, can, can experiment, construct. Remember, hundreds of years ago, guy would write on staff paper with 40 lines and then he'd write the second cello part and the first thing, and then he'd get to hear it someday. And you had, that's how you put music. Now you can put music together any way you want, you know? And I think it's a, it's a great time to be in music. But I do think my only advice is, is to uh, learn music theory because when you're doing everything by feel, things can happen. But knowing music theory, you can do something by feel and then you can also recreate it. It's very, very hard to, to just... Uh, it's like, here's, as a, as, a, as a failed musician... I thought I had figured it all out. You know, it's like I can keep a bit. I was playing behind, uh, you know, whatever band came into town, I'd be playing the part. I thought, I got this figured out. And then I got into a slightly different world. And I went, I have no idea about this and that. And, you know, learn, learn, learn music theory. It's really cool. I guess that's my advice. And uh, there you are. And, and, Keep looking to the past for your knowledge. Thank you, Bob, because I said that too. In order to go forward, you got to know what happened free to you. Coming, yeah. I tell people this all the time. This is why True House Stories, damn it, has been created for this reason. We got facts today from the man, from the horse's mouth, who was at the console, who has had all these great people around him. And he's also fantastic himself. And a creative genius in my book. I don't care what he says. He's a failed enthusiast guitar player. Who cares? He's done so much stuff. Even the speck of dust to have that kind of success that he has brought through others. And not to say, you got to realize something. He's leaving out some dark periods. Behind Marvin Schlachter prelude was Stan Hoffman. And Stan Hoffman, those that know, was... was was part of Meyer Lansky's family, okay? So just give you an indication. To give you an indication, he's leaving all this out, that you had Italian mafia and Jewish know-how pushing the buttons with radio and, of course, to funnel that cash and clean it. Why not put it through Bob's studio? What a great place to put it through. Bob would wash money, but in a good way. Bob, seriously, come on. They wash money. That got, that, you know, this is like the Godfather. This is real stuff. You were at a time where they said, sign here. And it didn't mean you signed because you really wholeheartedly signed. You had no choice. You had to sign. I tell everybody about uh, the Crown Heights Affair. And I remember uh, meeting Jeannie Napoli, 
who was uh, a songwriter, and uh, she was the wife of Napoli, who was in jail, <laughs> and Rand was running Delight Records from jail. Correct. <laughs> and we're we're in the studio, and I'm calling it from the south, and he have his phone to the south, and he's great. Oh, it was nuts. It, well, she was, they had this big townhouse and she was actually very, actually, she was actually cool. Um, she was supporting a number of, 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 of songwriters and they would come in and everything. And uh, uh, she, she uh, the guy who wrote this theme for Cheers was one of her protégés and we would do demos and everything. And I remember she was such a nice person and so, um, you know, it's like an idiot. I'm like, so, so what's, you know, so what's your life like and everything? She says, well, you know, every Tuesday I have to do this and this and that. I said, well, it all sounded really strange, you know? And he goes, oh, my, my husband is, is away. <laughs> and then I asked and I found out. I kept asking yourself, what do you mean he's away? Way where, on vacation? I, I wish, I wish I was smart enough to say, I said, I would actually smart enough not to ask that. I just found out that he'd been up in jail for um, the same thing that um, uh, uh, Lou Levy had been in jail for and uh, Mar- uh, Morris Levy, sorry, Mar- not Lou Levy, Morris Levy and all those people. Is it is it the word tax? <laughs> That's how they get it. That's how they get the Rico, It's the Rico, the Rico code, that tax evasion thing they get you on every time. Yeah. Well, because you know how I know, because I'm, fr- you know, I work with D Train and you're at Eves, and they saw the gold record sitting behind Marvin's, uh, behind his um, his chair, and he and Marvin's telling them, well, we didn't do too well on the record. Marvin leaves the room, Hubert goes and walks over by the window, and they 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 pull the record up like this, and it says. Prelude Records, RIAA, to commemorate 500,000 units of gold award. But how do you think he feels an artist? But don't you dare say a word. Because (laughs) down the hall is Stan Hoffman. Don't you dare say a word. I remember. You got a problem? No problem. (laughs) I'll have Stan call you in a little while. You didn't have a problem. No, no, we're all good. No, no, we're all Can you imagine that phone call? What that been like? You know, we used to have a joke. It used to be a joke that um, producers, the producer would bring their girlfriend in and they would they would finance the record, right? And that was that. It was either the producer had a girlfriend or somebody had just uh, gotten an insurance settlement or, uh, you know, somebody... Somebody's uncle had a nice, nice open cash for you. Exactly. And we'd be there and we'd think, ah, oh, she sucks. But uh, how much space food's really good? They're sending in. But you're right. You're right. Is that the niece of Gambino or Bonanno? Oh, yeah. They sound fantastic. <laughs> That's what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You got to keep the lights on. This is New York, everybody. Come on, let's be real. You were in the dire times of when the club scene, I talk about this all the time, everybody. The owners were either Jewish or their backers were Italian and they had muscle. They had money. They controlled the radio. They controlled the studios. They controlled the artists. They ran. Look, 
their response would be everybody made money. They didn't keep good books, but everybody made money. That's their answer. Absolutely. Right? Bob, did you keep the lights on? Did you have the clients? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept my mouth shut. And you had to keep your mouth shut, and you had to. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to be so, but this is true house stories, and you're no longer in that era. So we can actually, I would never, if this was 1985, I would have been very quiet about all this because they would still be floating around. But a lot of these guys are no longer with us anymore. Oh, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're tell, you're saying this because I remember reading Mel's, uh, uh, Mel's book? book, Mel Sharon's book, and I'm thinking, he left out a lot of stuff. He left yeah. out a lot of stuff. A lot of critical things that I that I when I was coming up, I, I heard all about this going on. And he was a he was a he was a good guy. He was a good guy, and he uh, you know he he did he did nice things for people. But he was in bed with the 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 sharks, you know. <laughs> Skepta Records. Uh, um. I'm going to name, say one name. You don't have to say anything. Alan Shivik. Oh, my God. I've heard that name a long time. But yes. I, <laughs> I think he's still around. Alan, I love you. Don't kill me. Don't kill him, man. Leave it alone. I know the name. <laughs> so, 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 you know, and then I was blessed like you. I got to catch the after effect. Like, you know, you were already doing your thing and I was coming up and I was picking up on those guys that worked alongside you. And I was blessed to work with other musicians and stuff that worked around you. And, you know, the console is a funny place because, man, shit comes out. You're like, oh, wow, that's and you're just being quiet and you're just doing and you're hearing them rap and it's just coming out. You're like. Yo, nobody's writing this stuff down. But for me, I happen to have a fantastic memory of hearing these things and keeping a log, especially of the dirt. And you're like, and you lived it, you know, in the music industry. It is what this is. I, I, have, to, I have to compliment you. I've listened to a bunch of your interviews and, and things. And uh, this, you're right. None of this, this stuff is, has been hidden under 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 things for a long time and uh your this history needs to be heard <laughs> you said it here's one last thing we didn't touch but you must touch it and i'm gonna let you go because i know ronnie specter everyone uh, who the hell's ronnie specter and why is he next to ronnie specter we didn't touch that picture we're gonna get that last one and then we're gonna say toodaloo Okay. Um, life too. <laughs> right. So that was me and Ronnie Spector, and that was us recording her audiobook. And I had known, uh, <clears throat> I knew her husband, and actually the the woman who was uh, the head of the audiobook company brought Ronnie in. And uh, <clears throat> he's he and Ronnie live in Connecticut, and we we made this audiobook. And what was so amazing about it? I mean, she's one of my super idols. And um, if you listen to the, the, the audio book, I engineered it. She just couldn't stop crying. I mean, she's so emotional and all that. But I worked with her, and then we, we made a number of records. Uh, we made the, uh, one record with uh, Joey Ramone. And uh, like I said, the, the 80s were a crazy time. And that picture is in my home studio in Stanford. And it was amazing when people, it was on the third floor, People would walk up the stairs and, like I said, Phoebe Snow, uh, 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 Peter Noon, 
you know, Peter Herman's hermits, these guys would show up um, and they were all, you know, from that whole crowd of people. And uh, it's amazing. When, when I moved to Connecticut, I thought I was moving to uh, the desert, but this was the place where everybody was. And we made a lot of good records. Yeah, now Rogers is in the neighborhood too. He lives in that area. I'm sorry? No, yeah. now Rogers has his house in your area. Or one of them, I should say. I think he's in Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, you look, you, you know, you thought you were going to be away from Manhattan, away from, as we say, where Rome built everything. Bob, I can't thank you enough. Jesus Christ, I could have 10 more hours and pick your brain. But I think you you definitely covered some main things and clarified some secrets and questions that were kind of circling around a long time and due to people wanting to keep some of those stories that are inaccurate to be accurate are no longer going to be able to be tested because you clarified that and we can't thank you enough. And, you know, dancing for inspiration, like Madonna said, dance for inspiration, dance and dance and dance. <laughs> if you ever want to check out Bob, go look at him on YouTube dancing. He's pretty hot. I'll tell you. He's a pretty hot dancer. Bob, one second. Hang on. Next week from one to another producer, Moose T. Moose T is coming on to share his story with True House Stories. It's going to be an interesting one because I have also personal experiences with Moose T as well. And we're going to be able to reminisce and hear his story. Bob, stay safe. God bless. And don't leave us yet. I want to thank you. And I want to say goodnight to all the viewers around the world. Thank you for tuning in to True House Stories. Catch us each and every week on Wednesdays. Until further notice, this show will be going to TV. You will be, it will be happening soon. But for right now, we'll stay right in your home, on YouTube, and all the platforms. www.truehousestories. If you need to see any of the past shows, check it out. Otherwise, catch us Wednesday live. And you can get your your questions answered. And thank you again. Good night, everyone around the world. Thank you.